It's Tuesday, March 29th, 2022, and you're listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the world. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Hoover Institution's Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism. Well, I can lay claim to that rather fancy job title. I'm not the only Hoover Fellow who's doing podcasts these days. If you don't believe me, go to our website, which is hoover.org, and check it out for yourself. You can find our podcast by going to the Publications tab and clicking on the left side of the menu where it says Podcast. You find all kinds of great content having to do with economics, law, international affairs, culture. You also find the audio version of The Goodfellow Show that I record with the great Neil Ferguson, H.R. McMaster, and John Cochran. All there waiting for your listening pleasure. If you want to subscribe, you can subscribe to any or all of them. If you want, you can also sign up for our monthly pod blast, which delivers the best for our podcast to your inbox once a month. Hoover Podcast, just one aspect of ideas defining a free society. My guest today is my colleague, Jacqueline Schneider. She's a Hoover Fellow, her research focusing on the intersection of technology, national security, and political psychology, with a focus on cybersecurity, unmanned technologies in Northeast Asia. She's also a non-resident fellow at the Naval War College's Cyber Innovation Policy Institute and a senior policy advisor to the Cyberspace Solarium Commission. Before beginning her academic career, Jacqueline Schneider spent six years as an Air Force officer in South Korea and Japan, and is currently a reservist assigned to U.S. Cyber Command. Jackie, thanks for coming on the podcast today. Thank you. And oh, I should update that bio. I am now working for Space Systems Command as a reservist, so no longer working for Cyber Command. Good. I want a cool (laughs) t-shirt. Me too. (laughs) Okay, let's begin this, Jackie. Uh, Monday, May 21st, President Biden goes before the cameras and he says the following, quote, the more Putin's back is against the wall, the greater the severity of the tactics he may employ, dot, dot, dot. One of the tools he's most likely to use, in my view, dot, 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 is cyber attacks. Now, Jackie, this is the same president who told the world a month in advance that Russia would, in, would evade Ukraine. Indeed, that happened. So I assume that the president is saying this is not a matter of if, but when. Let's take that a step further, Jackie. If it is a matter of when, not if, tell us the where and the how of this. In other words, if you are the Russians or some entity doing this on behalf of Russia, uh, cyber attacking the United States, what would you go after? So there are targets that you want to go after because they might be useful to you. Um, uh, For example, thinking about kind of proportional responses to financial sanctions, Mm -hmm. the logical proportional response or cyber attacks against the financial system Mm -hmm. or cyber attacks against U.S private companies. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the reality of cyber is you don't always get the target of your choosing. So if you're Russia, you may want to attack JP Morgan Chase, but the reality is you're going to be stuck with whatever access that you can get and whatever exploit you have to make any sort of effect. So you can be Russia and have uh, the ability to enter into a network, but then you also have to have the ability to uh, manipulate data or change the way the system works in order to create an effect. So those two things together mean that they probably have a limited um, amount of options on the table for them. Mm -hmm. And they're probably currently looking for more options. And hence what we've heard from the Biden administration, which is that it seems that there's not particularly one infrastructure that's targeted, but instead that the Russians are scanning all sorts of US critical infrastructure for vulnerabilities. Right. And it's simple as just deciding I want to go to MerrillLynch.com and probe away to see if I can get into it or going to WhiteHouse.gov just to see if I can can crack it. Or, or how does one exactly cyber attack? Yeah. So that what you're what you're explaining is what we would think of as something that we call a DDoS. And this is where you're just overwhelming a website. Can you explain That's- that too? 
DDoS? Uh, distributed denial of service. So when I go to log into a website, I the links work, right? And right. distributed denial of service attack is, is kind of like uh, barrage EW jamming. You're just overwhelming the amount of trons that are coming to that website and it goes down for a short period of time. Well, that's really frustrating and annoying and can be very... Um, uh, visually evocative because often a DDoS is accompanied with some sort of announcement, right? Like mm-hmm. this website is down because of skull and crossbones and this right. is Russia, right? Like, so there's, there is potentially a visual component to a DDoS, but the reality is this is like kind of like your baseline hacker. It's mm-hmm. not very good. It doesn't work very long. And it means that companies still have access to all of their data. And as long as they don't need that particular website in order to use any of their equipment or how they function, they're perfectly fine, right? So DDoSs right. are kind of very, very low scale, low hanging fruit. What is more worrisome is when a state or an actor has access to uh, the operating networks of, for example, an energy company. Um, And then that would allow the invader, the exploiter, to um, access, uh, for example, in the case of Stuxnet, to access the the way in which a piece of machinery works. So Stuxnet accessed the way the centrifuge is spun and caused them to spin out of control, creating physical damage. That's kind of the, the kismet. That's the, the biggest type of cyber attack. And those are often um, kind of colloquially, colloquially referred to as APT, Advanced Persistent Threats. That's a lot harder to do. Um, there's often manual overrides, manual backups, um, those are the type of attacks we worry about. Those are also the type of attacks that are least likely to occur because it is so difficult to do. Now, here we are doing this podcast, Jackie, on Tuesday, the 29th. And earlier today, there was a news report uh, coming off the East Coast, uh, Bradley International Airport in Windsor Locks, Connecticut, which smart person that you are, you know where that is. Not so smart person I am. I had to look it up on the map. Uh, it is an airport located about halfway between Hartford and the Massachusetts state line. Uh, that airport, Jackie, was reportedly hit with a cyber attack earlier today. Uh, a translated message left by the hackers said that, quote, when the supply of weapons to Ukraine stops, attacks on the information structure of your country will instantly stop. America, no one is afraid of you. So I think this is a good example of a very, very baseline cyber attack. So my understanding, this is actually a DDoS. So they're attacking a website, a public facing website. And so you do get this kind of emotional, evocative visual of the, the threat and the warning. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the reality is this probably had very limited impact on the ability for Bradley Airport to conduct operations. Um, it would be Um, a lot more uh, worrisome if the Russians were to hack into operation centers for like United or American um, or FAA control centers. They have, FAA has this thing called NextGen that helps them control most of the activity in the United States. Those would be the type of attacks you would worry about because that might actually ground planes. Um, But it's also, those are much more difficult attacks. I know, I know you're not, uh, uh, you know, have access to the details of this. You haven't seen the data or anything, but it just seems to me, Jackie, when you hear of this and you see this rather, you know, fancy language, you know, America soft seasons this, that doesn't sound like the work of the Russian government. I would assume that if Russia itself did it, it would be a little more sly and coy. This sounds just almost too, too obvious, if you will. 
<laughs> it does sound almost too obvious. And yeah. actually, um, the the Russians are generally better than DDoS, though they've used DDoS attacks before. But what we kind of know them for are more sophisticated uh, network intrusions like uh, solar winds, for example, or the um, uh, hacking of the Democratic National Convention um, and taking emails and releasing those. Um, and these are kind of more sophisticated um, operations. We also know in the context of this Ukraine conflict that the Russians have been very active trying to disrupt the Ukrainian ability to command and control. So there are talks of uh, hacks into the Viasat satellites, which the Ukrainians were using to help control the military forces really at the beginning of this conflict. Um, and then there, there's talk even today of the Russians potentially attacking the Ukrainian telecommunications and the internet um, inside of Ukraine. So the Russians are kind of going to get more bang for their buck on the battlefield from these types of attacks. Right. So actually, uh, Russia has apparently made moves against Ukrainian telecom. Jackie, the Wall Street Journal yesterday reporting a massive cyber attack against Ukur uh, Telecom. I hope I got the name right. Ukur Telecom, PJSC. Uh, that is Ukraine's seventh largest internet service provider. And it's an ISC, ISP that's also used by the Ukrainian military. Uh, according to the accounts, Jackie, uh, the telecom's ability to connect hit the internet began dropping uh, off after about 5 a.m. in the morning. Uh, by about 10 in the morning, close to noon, the company was almost completely offline. It was able to restore service. Um, this begs the question, though, Jackie, what's what's going on here if that A is not a knockout punch? But this takes us to the bigger question. If you and I had sat down and talked a month ago about Russia invading Ukraine, I don't know if what your thoughts would have been. Might would have been that the first thing they would do is they would try to blind Ukraine as much as they could, knock out their ability to communicate with, with each other, which would suggest a massive cyber attack. But yet here we are four or five weeks in this conflict right now, and Russia has just failed with that goal, if indeed that was a goal going in. Yeah, and there's a lot of questions about why this has occurred. This doesn't completely surprise me. Um, in my wargaming work, which tries to understand how cyber operations affect how conflicts erupt and how conflicts evolve, um, I find that in general, people use cyber operations as a complement to conventional operations. So instead of cyber blinding attacks and cyber as bombs, instead, cyber operations are a way in which we confuse sabotage and gain informational advantage. And I think the Russians are trying to do that. Now they have been less successful than you would expect, even for those of us who really were thinking about cyber more as intelligence and less as a bomb. Um, so why? There's a few reasons potentially. Uh, one is maybe the Russians were never as good as we thought. So that's always a possibility. And right. um, that uh, definitely is manifested in other domains where we maybe overestimated the Russian competence. Um, a second option is that the Ukrainians are better than we thought. Um, and the Ukrainians have said that they worked very hard leading up to this conflict to try and harden their critical infrastructure against cyber attacks. Mm -hmm. And that potentially they worked with members of NATO and potentially even the United States in order to um, combat potential cyber attacks. And the way cyber works is that um, once you've closed off an access, it takes a lot of manpower and resources to find another vulnerability. Mm -hmm. So potentially the month to six weeks leading up to this, this is what the Ukrainians were doing. And then the third kind of option is that 
activities which the United States would call defend forward, kind of counter cyber operations where um, cyber teams are attacking adversary cyber capabilities. So attacking the Russian GRU or the FSB, um, potentially um, that might be occurring and potentially it might be effective. So those are all kind of reasons why we might um, have seen that the Russians are less successful than maybe we would have expected six weeks ago. This is really interesting. I, you know, I'm a child of the Cold War. I remember during the Cold War, the fear was not just the missiles, but before the missiles, the EMP, the electromagnetic pulse, which would just wipe out abilities to communicate. And I guess maybe I'm naive or just not really that familiar with military affairs, but I would have thought that Russia going in, I was thinking back to maybe the Battle of Britain between Germany and Great Britain and the Nazis trying to conduct an aerial campaign. And in retrospect, where did they fail? They failed in two regards. First of all, they did not take out British airfields and ground airplanes, but secondly, they didn't take out the radar, giving Britain advanced warning. So that's what got me, got me back to thinking about using cyber as sort of a first strike, if you will. But you're telling me that cyber is not a first strike weapon necessarily. At least in terms of being the advent of a larger ground invasion. Yeah, it's just not as effective. It's not as easy as you would expect. So um, in the kind of cyber mythology, there's always this story from uh, 2006 where the Israelis um, supposedly used a cyber attack to take down SA-6s. And so they were able to fly into this airspace with no surface-to-air missile threat at all. And this is like the overriding mythology and lore about the role of cyber operations. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, that was actually probably electronic warfare, not cyber attacks. And and the way cyber works, it doesn't create these kind of large scale effects or blinding operations. Mm -hmm. Instead, where you see cyber operations being most effective is where they kind of slow down and create fog and uncertainty. And I I wonder if, um, you know, later on when we kind of look at why certain things happened in this conflict and certain things didn't, mm-hmm. that we might find that cyber played a larger role in slowing down conflict, especially slowing down an attack than mm-hmm. we might have expected. Um, but these are things that we won't know for, for many, many years. Uh, that'll come with all the, you know, all the battle damage assessments years later. So the Washington Post had a piece, Jackie, this morning asking this question, why hasn't cyber warfare been more on display, more visible in this conflict? And it uh, threw out two scenarios. Uh, I'd like to get your thoughts on these. One is that Russia may have anticipated needing the infrastructure once it occupied the country. So it made it made a you know choice not to destroy you know, cyber-related infrastructure. But secondly, Russian troops inside Ukraine may need the internet and cell service to talk to each other. They might not have satellite phones, for example. So they can't necessarily destroy, you know, the ability to communicate inside Ukraine because they need it themselves. I mean, okay, so I don't buy either of these arguments. Okay. Uh, the Russians obviously don't care about keeping infrastructure. They're bombing right. Jeezy's out of these cities. Right. I mean, they don't care, so they don't care if a cell tower goes down. No, this is not a country that is restraining itself because it's worried what the infrastructure is going to look like when it takes over. I mean, there's a cognitive dissonance here. Actually, there was a a question asked of one of the nuclear operators in Ukraine. Oh, my gosh, are you worried the Russians are going to conduct a cyber attack against you? They said, no, they're bombing me. Like, I'm not worried about a cyber attack when a state is already willing to use indiscriminate shelling against a nuclear power plant. Um, I think like I wouldn't say it's because they want to save infrastructure. Now, the question about are they restraining attacks because they're using piggybacking on the same infrastructure? I don't think that was probably initially ever the plan. Mm -hmm. I mean, 
theoretically, the Russians are going to war with a battlefield network and command and control structure that does not require using the Ukrainian cell towers. <laughs> <laughs> what we're seeing is that the, the Russians are having to revert to commercial technologies and Ukrainian um, infrastructure because their stuff didn't work or potentially because there were attacks on their stuff that right. meant that they had to update and change uh, how they were communicating. So I don't think either of these are reasons why the Russians didn't conduct uh, more cyber attacks against the Ukrainian command and control. I just think if you look at um, what are the infrastructures that survive cyber attacks, it's those that are, are highly resilient. Um, and I think the Ukrainians focused on building resilient networks, but also kind of the structure of the internet is in inherently resilient. It's like when you look at network pictures of resilient networks, the, the internet is one of these examples. Mm -hmm. And so there, if you're not building a highly centralized structure, it's very difficult to have attacks that take out the entire network. Um, and modern companies know this, right? So modern companies are trying to build decentralized and distributed networks that are able to withstand attacks. Right. You know, it strikes me, Jackie, this is the first um, tech versus tech war of the 21st century. In other words, a, a country invading another country, and they both have strong technological capabilities. Unlike, say, invading Afghanistan or maybe Iraq as well, Ukrainian, as we're seeing now. They're, they have very strong telecommunications as do Russia. So now we're seeing involved in the warfare how technology really plays out. Yeah, and I think what we're seeing is that, um, you know, for years, the United States was thinking about technology and war as um, dominance, overmatch, speed, um, quick ability to conduct over, overarching giant effects, right? Mm -hmm. But I think the reality is, especially in today's kind of technological competition, is that the states that are able to persevere are those that are able to adapt with technology, that are able to survive into the second phase of conflict, that when their satellites are hacked and they can't use them, have a backup means of communication. And so it's building technologies that allow that adaption and resiliency and being able to um, decentralize the way in which you conduct operations. I think that's actually the, the future of how technology is going to affect warfare. And um, I don't think it's necessarily how the United States has, not, has been investing in technology. And so there are definitely lessons learned here for the United States as it thinks about how it's going to invest in technology for future conflicts. And I'll get to those in a minute. Uh, Jackie, I'm surprised that one person who has not uh, suffered a cyber attack yet is Elon Musk. Uh, and I say this for two reasons. First of all, Mr. Musk has made this very personal against Mr. Putin. He's said, let's you and I have a fight and we'll decide who wins Ukraine over our fight. I think he's taunted uh, Putin and said, you can bring your bear if you want to. Just kind of calling him a sissy. Uh, but on a more serious side, um, Musk is involved in Ukraine in this regard. Uh, Starlink, which is the uh, satellite part of uh, most uh, SpaceX. Um, if you know how Starlink works, this is using antennae, sort of like a dish on your roof. The antenna reaches up the satellite, and that provides uh, internet service. And Musk has been sending these into Ukraine. It allows remote regions of Ukraine to put their little sticks up in the air and get on the internet. So I just, again, wonder why Russia has not lashed out against, um, against Musk and his operation. I'm not wishing this happens. I'm not suggesting this should happen, but it's just kind of a curious what if at this point. Uh, well, so these are actually inherently vulnerable. Um, yeah. Here's something that like Elon Musk, who is a, a commercial technologist, may not um, have known or realized um, right. when he proliferated these systems. One is that anything that's communicating to satellites um, 
inherently has a bit of a, a digital footprint, right. right? So because it's you're you're literally beaming up and down information right. that can become a beacon uh, for states that are able to collect that kind of information for them to understand where different forces or anyone using that satellite link is located. So That's actually, right. Musk realized very. Um, quickly, people told him, hey, these are very vulnerable. They can actually highlight where forces are. And so he went on Twitter and said and, and tweeted um, a, a series of recommendations about how to physically hide the satellite antenna. Um, so maybe he didn't quite understand that the vulnerability was the digital information itself and how that was transferred. So actually, his systems are not um, fully encrypted either. So they are have been under attack, and um, there are rumors actually that they've been used to um, that they've been used to help identify where people are using these satellites, and that they're not um, as useful in a conflict where a state is able to find these types of satellite transmissions. Right, but here's where I'm fascinated at the idea of Russian retaliatory action because what's a juicier target than going after Tesla, for example, and taking down Tesla for a day? Yeah. Okay. So, which, which, by the which, by the way, is further complicated, Jackie, because if you're driven a Tesla and you drive from San Francisco to Los Angeles, you need Tesla's satellite uplink to figure out where to get uh, get a recharge. So, this is a really important question. Mm-hmm. Why, if cyber is um, whether if there are so many vulnerabilities, right. so many dependencies, why we just don't see more uh, cyber attacks coming from the Russians? And the first is we mm-hmm. are seeing more cyber attacks coming in general even prior to this conflict, because we are more dependent and more vulnerable. But it's primarily for ransomware, right? So it's primarily of criminal intent. The reality is that the Russian, that cyber operations are highly manpower resource constrained. So we have to use human beings to find accesses to develop exploits. These are not all automated at this point. And so if you have a limited resource of talented professionals that can find these kind of exploits, then you have to decide where am I putting my resources? Are my resources going into the Ukrainian battlefields? Are my resources going into NATO? Are my resources going into the domestic uh, people, the the domestic spying that I, I, I need to make sure my oligarchs and the public isn't rising up against me. Mm -hmm. So part of why we don't see more cyber attacks in the context of this conflict is that there's a resource constraint. Um, And so the it's very hard to to get enough people to create the sort of mass uh, effects that you might expect. Now, the criminals are still out there and they are still doing and they're still attacking hospitals and businesses in order to extort payment. Uh, explain to me, Jackie, what Viasat is, V-I-A-S-A-T, Viasat. So it's, you know, satellite communications. So the way in which we communicate, so if we're sitting at home, uh, we're generally communicating either with some sort of fiber or wireless. Uh, you and I are probably not talking via satellite. We're just not that special. But also because infrastructure already exists, right? Right. In war, this changes. I cannot make sure that I'm next to a fiber optic terminal in order to communicate. You have to move your forces. So you don't necessarily have a telephone. So then your options are uh, wireless or satellite. 
And wireless communications are inherently interceptable, um, but they're also really uh, vulnerable to conventional attacks. I mean, these are wireless towers that you see everywhere. Um, so that's a limitation. So oftentimes modern militaries are gonna rely on satellite communications in order to coordinate conflict. Uh, that allows for over the horizon. Um, it also, satellites are generally less interceptable than wireless, not necessarily to major um, nation states, but definitely to like the lay public. So a company, uh, a resource like Viasat is something that like the Ukrainian military is going to use to communicate with its forces across the country, hopefully in an encrypted way. Um, so that's why it becomes really important to the Ukrainian military to have access to these kind of resources. Right. And Viasat's involvement in the Ukrainian war, it was attacked, no? The, some of the modems that they use right. were attacked, yes, right. with a cyber attack. Right. At the same time that the Russian forces, so we don't know necessarily if Russia did it, but it was in conjunction with the attack. So obviously it benefited them. The purpose of this was to do what? Keep Ukrainians from talking to each other? Keep, keep the military disorganized? Absolutely. Like, how do you how do you cut off uh, a military who is trying to defend itself? You cut off their ability to command and control. So this is, I think, that's kind of a, I would say, a, a 101 um, type right. of cyber attack. Right. Okay. Via, uh, Viasat's also tied into what's called the Commercial Integration Cell or CIC, which is located at Vandenberg Air Force Base here in sunny Southern California. Can you explain a little bit what CIC is, Jackie? Uh, I actually do not uh, work with them, so I okay. don't. I don't actually know a lot about what they do. And I will say that there are the modems that were affected in right. this particular attack, to my knowledge, were in Europe. So there are geographic differences. There is a geography to data. Okay. There are Viasat uh, resources um, in the United States. My impression, and see this is all evolving, is that those modems were not affected by the attack. But mm -hmm. this is all kind of open source reporting. Okay, uh, let's talk about teachable moments now. We'll get to America uh, last. Um, what about China, Jackie? I assume China is watching this and it's studying the West reaction and China would have an interest because if one day it wants to go across the strait and attack Taiwan, similar dynamics to Ukraine. So what do you think China is taking away from this right now? From the cyber domain? Yeah, from the cyber domain. I'm curious. Yeah. And, 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 uh, if you're how familiar with China and its, its cyber setup, uh, China, if you look at China, they have all kinds of interesting benign names for cyber warfare, like the 57th Research Initiative and Institute and so forth. But, you know, are the, Chinese, are the Chinese studying this and trying to figure out in terms of cyber what to do vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan? Is it as simple as that? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the Chinese are probably uh, realizing that defense matters. I think that's something that countries all over the world are taking. There was kind of this myth that you could invest in cyber defense and it wouldn't matter. That doesn't seem to be the case. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the first thing the Chinese are taking from this is they're going to need to be able to defend their own resources. Mm -hmm. um, the second uh, lesson that they're probably going to be taking is that they're going to need to build more resilient networks um, and have a plan of action for their forces when they're forward deployed to nice. be able to use updated battlefield networks and updated encryption. This is something that the Russians seem to not be doing very well. Right. Um, and I think one of the other lessons you see here is how important information sharing across alliances is. So. Um, Part of why the Ukrainians have potentially been more successful defending against Russian cyber attacks is because uh, 
probably NATO and the United States are sharing information about cyber threats. Right. So that's something that the Chinese are going to want Taiwan to not have access to. And Taiwan, you know, like Ukraine is not part of an official alliance, but Asia is also a much more difficult cyber uh, landscape in terms of alliances. You know, it's a series of hub and spoke alliances instead of one large conglomerate like NATO. So um, information sharing in NATO is far more mature in cyberspace and in other domains than it would probably ever be in Asia. And that's something I think the Chinese will probably um, definitely manipulate um, is the lack of information sharing and lack of information resources that are already built to share with Taiwan on cyber. There are things that we can do with Ukraine in cyberspace that are politically fraught um, I'm sorry, there are things that we can do with Ukraine mm-hmm. in cyberspace that are politically fraught for us to do with Taiwan. Um, and so some of the arrangements um, that you saw with Ukraine um, probably don't exist uh, with Taiwan. What would that be? What, what do you mean by politically fraught? Um, so we don't have, um, we had a series of like the National Guard, for example, worked very closely with the Ukraine, Ukraine, right? California National Guard, yeah. Exactly. Right. Um, there was a lot of security assistance that was happening mm-hmm. to Ukraine from the United States and training. Right. Uh, that is more politically fraught with Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Right? So that that's something that I think the United States is going to have to think about um, in the future. Okay, let's say you're sitting on the island of Taiwan, Jackie, and you're studying this war over in Europe and thinking we could be facing a similar scenario. Very popular in these circles to talk about turning Taiwan into a quote unquote porcupine, which means just arming it to the teeth, making it just you don't want to invade this country. But what can it do in terms of cyber to make itself a porcupine? Do you think there are lessons from what's going on in Ukraine that that Taiwan can study or is Taiwan kind of is it marching to its own beat in terms of cyber at this point? Um, I think, once again, the information sharing mechanisms, I think Taiwan's going to be asking for more formal information sharing mechanisms when it comes to cyberspace, Mm -hmm. um, especially with the United States, but potentially with other countries in the region. Um, I think looking at Ukraine, if you're Taiwan, you realize that you're in a much more vulnerable position. Ukraine has a lot of fiber because it's a continental landmass. So a lot of its communications are very difficult to cut off because they're underground. That's not the case for Taiwan. Taiwan is uh, contingent on undersea cabling. um, And that is inherently more vulnerable than the kind of fiber networks that Ukraine have that, you know, go straight to the West and to Europe. So if I'm Taiwan, I'm thinking about how am I communicating if these uh, these cables are cut. Um, and then you have to think about the vulnerabilities that you've seen with satellites. So what's what's the alternative if satellites aren't working for the Taiwanese to be able to maintain communications? That's, that's going to be expensive infrastructure for them to think about. All right, let's talk about Russia for a second. The famous riddle wrapped in a mystery inside Enigmas. Churchill called it, uh, you look at Russia's uh, cyber setup. Uh, they have so-called military district cybersecurity centers. Jackie, what, what takeaways do you think they have from this conflict right now? Do you think they regret not having a different strategy going now in terms of cyber? Or do you think cyber is working out just okay for them? Uh, <laughs> oh my goodness, wouldn't I love to know that answer? Yes. <laughs> um, I, 
I mean, you know, you have intelligence officials that are being fired uh, in right. Russia right now. So I don't think uh, anyone's probably sitting back and saying we did everything really, really well. Um, well, let me let me post this differently to you. Then um, we have seen all kinds of struggles Russia in terms of militarily. In terms of military, there's first of all the question of whether or not they are fighting a 20, 20th century war in the twenty first century, in terms of not being able to react to you know you know missiles and things like that, and to take missiles, for example. Uh, secondly, is a question about modernization. If essentially his leadership has been lying to Putin over the years about making a better military, there's a question about the fighting spirit of the Russian soldiers themselves. These anecdotal stories of you know surrender and quitting and not knowing they're invading and so on and so forth. But the cyber tech this is why I asked the question about whether or not cyber is living up to its potential here. If as you kind of assign blame to where Russia's gone wrong here, where it's failed, if there's a cyber aspect of the story or not. So we we have very little aperture right. into the decision-making inside the cyber apparatus for, mm-hmm. for Russia. So it's all kind of, you know, yeah. we suppose, we don't suppose. I will say every modern country has to make decisions about how it allocates its resource for defense for and for offense. And when we're thinking about offense, are you investing in cyber operations on the battlefield? Are you investing in cyber operations against critical infrastructure? Um, Russia is looking at its arsenal of what it comes into this conflict with and is probably discontent mm-hmm. at this point with what they have. Um, I don't know what they came into this conflict with, so I don't know what they just haven't chosen to use versus what they haven't used effectively. Um, but they probably think that they have allocated resources in the wrong place at this point. Do cyber attacks qualify under Article 5 of NATO? Oh, that's a great question. That's become quite the um, quite the, lur- the the looming question. So Mark Warner, um, Senator Warner, was has been interviewed multiple times and has voiced his concern that a cyber attack could uh, lead to Article 5. And he referenced, for example, a cyber attack against Ukrainian energy infrastructure that actually shuts down energy infrastructure in Poland. Um, And NATO itself has warned that a cyber attack could trigger trigger Article 5. So this is a stated uh, policy of NATO that a cyber attack could trigger Article 5. It's actually relatively new for them to agree to even save us. The realities of what that cyber attack would look like to trigger Article 5 are murky. Mm -hmm. Um, So we talked about DDoSs at the beginning of this. Uh, Would taking out a website count as a cyber attack? I mean, it is a cyber attack. Is NATO going to go to war with Russia over a website being down? Right. I'm going to venture no. Right. Well, I, I think that's part of the challenge here, Jackie. Um, you know, going to war is you know both the military response. It's also largely a, an emotional response. Attack, you know, the attack on Pearl Harbor, for example, the attack on the World Trade Center. Um, but I think there's a big difference between taking down, you know, Google Mail for a day or something like that yeah. versus launching a missile against the U.S. Capitol or the Eiffel Tower. Yeah, and you know, here's the thing, and I've studied this a lot because one of the large scholarly puzzles about cyber operations is how little emotional reaction there is to cyber attacks. So I've worked on experiments and war games where I'm varying the level and intensity of cyber attack to try and understand what's the hurt point? What is the point at which it's become so emotionally invocative that we're willing to commit conventional forces for retaliation? 
And the answer is it's like extraordinarily high, extraordinarily high. So high, in fact, that it's really not indicative of the way cyber attacks make effects. So my research suggests that at least the American public is does not view cyber attacks in the same way as attacks in other domains, right. even if they create the same effect. And other researchers have found similar phenomenon in Europe. Right. So the ability for it to create the kind of emotional or evocative response that would bring NATO into this war, I think the chances of that are extremely, extremely low. Yeah, it seems to me when we talk about using the internet, there's obviously the social communicative side of the internet, you and I swapping emails, for example. Uh, if that goes down for a day or two or three, we're not going to fight over that. We'll get over it. Um, there is the commercial side of it. Let's say we can't get onto Amazon or Apple for two or three days. We'll get over that. Uh, but maybe if there's a cyber attack which cleans out your finances and mine, or maybe there's a cyber attack that shuts down hospitals and people on dialysis die and so forth, maybe that begins the emotional spark. But again, it's you know, it's not quite the same as seeing ships on fire in Pearl Harbor or seeing towers come down in New York, now is it? No, and in fact, the uncertainty that cyber operations create about attribution, about intention, about whether it was a cyber incident or whether your IT uh, team messed up, all of those, that uncertainty actually gives space and time um, to react. And anytime you have lots of space and time, it attenuates the emotional kind of response. So we actually have seen attacks on hospitals. We've seen um, attacks on hospitals that potentially led after many kind of chains to death. Um, and yet that becomes a source of litigation, not retaliation and it hits very few headlines. Um, we've seen attacks that have trickle down um, effects on commercial enterprises. Mm. That said, the financial system has an existential relationship with digital technology because the ones and the zeros of modern commerce uh, translate into value. Uh, when we do not trust the digital information that underlies the financial system, that becomes existential to modern finance and modern banking. Right. That I worry about, but that's less likely to be like one pivotal moment and more likely to be kind of this erosion of trust over time. And I will say the uh, finance industry knows this and they are the best defended, most competent infrastructure in the world. I mean, far beyond the Department of Defense. Okay. Let's talk about DOD and let's talk about America's cyber capabilities, Jackie. Uh, I did a little internet sleuthing. The internet always right, of course. And what did I discover? Well, various branches of the armed services have their own cyber commands. There's also U.S. Cyber Command, which is inner service. But who's running this, Jackie? In other words, when it comes time to fight, when it comes, comes time to become engaged militarily, if you have the Navy with cyber capability, the Army, the Air Force, all who have their kind of own cyber shows going, how do these branches decide what to do? Well, it gets even more confusing because there's also the geographic and functional commands that have their own cyber forces. So now, now, don't, don't tell me you want to create another command on top of the commands. But. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm definitely not that kind of person. The classic Washington solution. We need, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We need a cyber czar. No. Oh, well, we, we've done this, actually, yes. the cyber czar. Okay. Um, so this is actually a really uh, confusing thing uh, mm. about kind of how cyber gets allocated within the Department of Defense. So... 
the top layer is Cyber Command. But Cyber Command doesn't actually have a lot of cyber troops that are assigned to conduct cyber operations. It has one team, um, the cyber mission team, the cyber national mission team. And those teams of, of cyber protection teams, cyber kind of offensive teams, cyber support teams um, are only tasked with defending the nation. So they are looking at uh, attacks on critical infrastructure, um, any uh, attacks against kind of the US population writ large. That is controlled, it's a joint organization controlled by Cyber Command. Most of the cyber forces, as you pointed out, actually reside at the services. So uh, Navy cyber folks do uh, Navy cyber things, Air Force cyber folks do Air Force cyber things. So, you know, if you're an Air Force cyber person, potentially maybe you're looking at Air Force operations, cyber operations that um, uh, make an integrated air defense system not work, right? And if you're the Navy, you're concerned with the way in which the the Russian naval fleet communicates, right? So these are very kind of service specific. Right. And so the services are, most of the, the manning and resources flow to the services. So they're developing these cyber teams, the protection teams to defend their own networks. Because by the way, each one of the services has their own kind of information networks. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're developing their own teams to protect their own service networks and to kind of target air naval army things. But they don't actually conduct campaigns. So then those people are assigned different geographic combatant commands. So uh, UCOM, for example, in Europe, or the Indo-PACOM in the Pacific. And then those commands are in charge of planning and allocating and integrating the cyber capabilities. And so they'll have a team of cyber planners and cyber operators that function at that geographic command. And sometimes they'll say, hey, cyber command, you need to send us some more because we have a big war happening. But the combatant commands only have a small fixed number of these, right? So they, if there is a big conflict, they kind of have to beg, bo uh, borrow, and steal to get more people. Right. And so, uh, so it's not a kind of natural allocation of resources. It evolves all the time. Every single part of this kind of cyber order of battle is unhappy with how much cyber they have. They want more people, more mm -hmm. billets, more resources, and they're constantly fighting against um, what we say in the military. It's the ADCON and TACON, who has administrative control and who has kind of the, the tactical control to be able to command and control these forces in a conflict. Um, constant bureaucratic battle. So having described all of that, where do you see room for improvement within U.S. cyber capabilities? Um, so we don't have enough people. I mean, I've mentioned this multiple times in this conversation, but it's a manpower uh, resource. Not as It's a tech resource, but it's mostly a manpower resource. So there needs to be more people and they need to be better trained. Is that a function of recruitment, Jackie, or function of retainment or both? It's both. So, you know, you struggle to recruit the right people um, because you need people who are technically proficient, but also willing to kind of enter into the military lifestyle and the right. military culture um, that has certain physical requirements, for example. Not everybody can do that. Also, some people don't pass security clearance. Maybe they, you know, smoke too much pot in college. They have too many foreign friends. We can't bring them in either. So, I mean, there's a smaller pool of people that you can bring into the military just in general. So the recruitment is tough. And then in order to keep people trained is really, really difficult. 
um, in terms of kind of defensive capabilities, they don't have the level of skill or training that you would have in the private sector. Uh, we've been trying to augment that by using reservists and guard members who spend most of their time in the civilian sector, but that has limitations as well. And then on the offensive side, um, it's just a limited amount of people that you can use um, to conduct these kinds of really, really, really manpower intense operations. So, and then once they get in, uh, it's hard to retain them. I mean, there's a money element, right, where you're getting paid more on the private sector. There's also a bit of a quality of life element here. I mean, for those who have been in the military, um, the, the military technology is not good. Um, they're generally not doing the most up-to-date technological work. And so folks who are really inspired by high-tech um, IT are not gonna be happy inside the Department of Defense. Um, so the offensive stuff is cool, but the defensive stuff, we're maybe a decade behind. Um, so that's another problem with retention is folks just kind of get bored in their job or frustrated. Um, and then there's kind of the really archaic HR processes that exists within the Department of Defense. And that's a large deterrent to keeping people inside the military. Um, they all know this though. I mean, these are things that have been in all sorts of congressional testimony. <laughs> exactly, so it sounds like what you're pointing to is a phrase that Dwight Eisenhower uh, used in a, in a bad way, which is military industrial complex, at least in this regard. If you can't keep people on the inside, Jackie, then set up a relationship with people on the outside through contracting, for example, oh, through Silicon yeah. Valley. Well, that would be a great idea. Um, that is fraught with issues as well. Um, the, depart the way the Department of Defense acquires, procures, and contracts uh, means that a lot of companies don't want to work with the Department of Defense. That's why you end up getting uh, very large companies like Raytheon, Lockheed, Boeing, right. um, that are really good at producing weapons. But Maybe not the top of the line when it comes to creating um, IT uh, software or cyber security. Mm. But the DOD is primarily going to go to them because they already have these built up relationships. There's lobbying organizations. Um, now, the Department of Defense is trying to work more with Silicon Valley. There's um, the Defense Innovation Unit in Silicon Valley. Um, a series of innovation units have have. Um, have been started in the Army and the Air Force and the Navy. Um, and there are these kind of uh, somewhat innovative contracting mechanisms they try and use in order to uh, prototype different types of software. Uh, but inherently, there it, there's a real problem about how we uh, fully integrate these companies. Um, how do we get past prototype? How do we pay for your software sustainment and cybersecurity sustainment? Um, and I, there's a lot of room and work to be done bureaucratically to make the Department of Defense um, a more innovative organization, especially when it comes to cyber and software. And then finally, Jackie, what about our relationship with our allies? Um, I imagine the NATO countries, Israel, other nations are doing a lot of creative things on the cyber front. Do countries like to share what they're doing in terms of advances or are we all kind of like, you know, not showing our cards to each other? You can make an argument both ways. Allies should have the best of technology. On the other hand, maybe there are things you want to keep in reserve. So I think when it comes to cyber defense and information sharing, this has really improved, especially in NATO, really kind of largely led by Baltic countries and countries right. that have been worried about Russian cyber attacks for a long time have spearheaded a series of information sharing cyber initiatives. So um, NATO's looking a lot better than it used to. Offense is difficult. Um, 
I think the United States has natural relationships with what we call the Five Eye Partners. So uh, New Zealand, Canada, um, Great Britain, um, Australia. And so they already had a relationship with signals intelligence, highly technical intelligence, and that that relationship transfers very nicely into cyber. So that relationship is kind of already built to be sharing information about both offensive and defensive operations. But we don't have a lot of those relationships with other countries. Um, maybe Korea might be closer because we have a very uh, strong bilateral relationship with South Korea because of the ongoing <laughs> stalemate with North Korea. Um, but outside of, uh, you know, those major alliance relationships, everything's going to be ad hoc. And states have strong incentives not to share information about offensive cyber operations, especially because um, sharing information about this could mean that you lose the the vulnerability or you lose the the access completely the final question for you jackie here we are talking on tuesday the 29th uh, the good news of the better part of the last hour there's not been a cyber attack against zoom uh you and i have not been shut down uh, but we are approaching about one week since the president said hey there could be a cyber attack coming our way uh in the meantime there's a lot of talk about peace a peaceful settlement in this conflict. Uh, Ukraine and uh, Russia are talking. I think they're in Turkey having negotiations right now. I'm curious your thoughts as to how this would tie into a cyber attack. In other words, if you're Putin, and I apologize, I'm kind of asking to put you inside of Putin's head. Good luck with that. But in other words, it ties in the nature of cyber warfare, if you will. If you think you're reaching a peaceful solution, do you hold back on a cyber attack? Uh, or do you go ahead and launch a cyber attack anyway to maybe try to move forward the process? Or maybe this is something that Putin waits for after Afterwards, once there's a settlement and then he does something as kind of a kind of an FU toward the West. I think it, it kind of depends on how serious you are about the, the peace initiative, right? Yes, so I think yes. Biden for time in order to build another um, uh, another kind of phase of the campaign, or are you actually trying for peace? So if you're actually trying for peace, then restraint is a great option. Right. Um, I think there's a lot of uncertainty about how the United States would respond to a very large cyber attack. And despite everything I've said about how the United States probably will not retaliate against the cyber attack, if I were Putin, I'd always be worried about bringing the United States really into this conflict. Mm -hmm. Because what brought us in on the side of uh, the UK and others in World War II, it was you know the Germans destroying civilian ships that were being used to help the, uh, the British. Um, but it's, if you attack the United States, there's always the chance that the full power of the United States comes into the conflict. Two things, Jackie. First of all, we'd have to prove that it was either from Russia or sanctioned, use that word sanctioned, but sanctioned by Russia. It could come from Belarus or some other country, but we sort of like the shooting of the Pope. We'd have to prove that it was tied into the Kremlin in some way. Uh, so first of all, you'd have to have fingerprints on it. But then second, I guess we'll, we'll sign off with this. It's a question of what retaliation would look like. You know, back in 20th century warfare, if somebody, you know, you know, bombs one of our ships, we take out, you know, some of their facilities and so on and so forth. But a cyber attack, you can do all, you know, all kinds of levels you can do. You can do something very subtle. And I guess I'll top of that, Jackie, would you tell the world that you did a cyber attack? Uh, as far as I know, when Israel does things to Iran's nuclear program, they don't advertise it either beforehand or afterhand. It kind of somehow slips out very cleverly in the Daily Mail that they did it, but they're not broadcasting and putting out press releases and taking victory laps. 
Well, that's the difference between cyber for sabotage and cyber for coercion. And right. it's better for sabotage because it doesn't matter who does, did it, right? You created an effect. Right. But I think the question is whether Russia is going to be using cyber as a coercive tool. So attacking the United States in order to signal to the US that there's more punishment coming and therefore you need to stand down in this conflict. And what research suggests is that cyber is a very, very poor tool of coercion for all the reasons you just mentioned, because of how difficult it can be to attribute or the amount of time it takes to attribute and the potential that the attack becomes a fizzle instead of a bang. Right. All of those make them very, very poor signals. So if I were the Russians, there's no point in using cyber operations for signaling. You either, it doesn't work or you push too hard and you push the US into it. So it, it's not a useful signal, um, but it is useful for sabotage. And um, if the United States were to be providing significant amount of weapons or some sort of transfer, and we were dependent, for example, on a factory in the United States, I would see that as being a very legitimate and potential target for cyber attacks. Okay, absolute final question, I promise. How surprised will you be if there's a cyber attack in the next few weeks? How surprised will you be there if there's not a cyber attack in the next few weeks? I will not be surprised if there are cyber attacks. Mm -hmm. I will be surprised if there is a cyber attack that creates large scale like physical death or um, a, a large scale impact on the United States economy that's bigger than what has already happened. I will say, I think in general, cyber attacks generally, um, they have a very short duration of efficacy um, and can be overcome quite quickly. But where we see problems is where people panic so Colonial Pipeline, the cyber attack did not actually affect the overall supply of oil or gas, right? But, but, here. Yeah. but people panicked right. and that created an artificial shortage. So as long as Americans can realize there are going to be cyber attacks, they are going to continue to happen. You might even have a short term problem where you can't access some data, but if you can keep calm, everything will be fine. Okay, well, I'm going to try to keep Tom Jackie and I feel calmer having talked to you. I sure appreciate the conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, the Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the world. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to our show. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Tell your friends all about us. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's spelled at Hoover, I-N-S-T. Jackie Schneider, brave woman that she is, is on Twitter. Her Twitter handle is at Jackie G. Schneid. I'm going to spell that out for you. J-A-C-K-I-E, capital G. S-C-H-N-E-I-D at Jackie Schneid. I mentioned our website beginning the podcast that is hoover.org. While you're there, sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Jackie Schneider and her Hoover colleagues to your inbox weekdays. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Matters of Policy and Politics. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.